0: When we talk about intersectionality, a lot of the focus tends to be on race and gender, and often class is overlooked. But in fact, poverty really affects women in different ways from the way that it affects men, and should be much more part of the conversation. Sarah Smarsh grew up amongst the working poor in America's Midwest, and she's written a book about it called Heartland, which is not only about her own life and struggles growing up, but also about the way that the American dream has kind of failed as an idea. In this conversation at All About Women with the ABC's Cassie McCullough, Sarah considers how intergenerational poverty affects women in particular and also how she broke the cycle in her own family.
1: I grew up on a farm at the geographical center of the United States, the largely rural state of Kansas. And before I go on, rest assured, I've heard all the Wizard of Oz jokes, and I'm aware that I'm not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) So here's that farm where I came of age. My roots there run deep. I was the fifth generation of my family to work that land. I rode tractors on the same flat, grassy plains where my ancestors rode covered wagons. We descended from poor white European immigrants who received free land from the United States government at a time when indigenous nations were being decimated and freed black slaves were being barred from land ownership. So we had what you might call a simultaneous economic disadvantage and racial privilege. The latter, hard to perceive during my childhood in that most everyone in our area was white and we were near the bottom of the social pecking order, men and women alike doing dangerous, dirty manual labor. Our poverty was hard to perceive too, actually. We were indeed poor by every economic measure, but we didn't think of ourselves that way. We had enough to eat and a roof over our heads, so by our estimation, we ought not complain. We had too, amid various family dysfunctions, a wealth of love, Humor, resilience, and even fun. Contrary to what pat media narratives might tell you about my part of the United States, it's full of diverse, complicated individuals. Not all of them voted for the current US president. They're not ignorant and backward. They are, as individuals, as brilliant, creative, and complex as upper middle class residents of cosmopolitan places like New York and Los Angeles but precious few among them ever has a chance to speak on a stage like this. Let me tell you about a few of them. Betty was born in 1945 during the Second World War to two factory workers. And note that I said two. Visions of the American working class often include the male factory worker, not the female, but indeed both have existed since the Industrial Revolution. Betty had a violent father and a fiery mother, and she had to be tough, a fighter, to survive. As a teenager, she began decades of her own work in factories and highway diners. She became pregnant with her first child at age 16. As a single mother, she was working by necessity before the women's movement sought to liberate women from domestic confinement. Women like Betty and her mom, her grandmother even, had been working outside the home all along. Betty grew up in Wichita, the biggest city in Kansas. Wichita is no bustling metropolis, but with a couple hundred thousand residents during Betty's upbringing, it was hardly a rural existence. So, why is she astride a horse here? Well, during Betty's youth, she married and divorced a long line of abusive men. In her mid-30s, she finally met a good one, who happened to be a farmer. Here's Arnie. He raised wheat, cattle, pigs, and chickens west of Wichita. During the winter months, when crops were dormant, he butchered at an an area meat locker for an extra income. And as you can see, he was a bit of a feminist. Uh, (laughs) Betty thought, my goodness, a man who is kind to me and vacuums the house. I reckon he's a keeper. So... So when she was in her mid-30s, they married. And uh, for reasons, actually, that have to do with gender and class, and you'll have to read my book to to find the specifics, uh, he was her eighth husband, believe it or not. Now, when Betty moved to the farm, she brought with her a teenage daughter named Jeannie. And meanwhile, Arnie had a 20-something son who had a lot of friends in the area. One of them was an area farm boy and carpenter named Nick. Nick. Jeannie and Nick fell in love. There's Nick, hanging out with Arnie, doing some sort of work. And uh, that's when I came along, in 1980. That's Jeannie, my mom. 1980 happens to be the year when the United States began a sharp turn toward the historic wealth inequality that I write about today. So in many ways, you can sort of track my life against that widening gap that is at the fore of our uh, discourse today. A little bit about Jeannie. She was a bookish, creative young woman, which I suppose might be where I came by my sensibilities as a future writer. That's me uh, ambitiously reading a book on the the sun and wind-weathered steps to our trailer home, mobile home. We lived on a patch of prairie at that time that my dad had purchased with his meager savings, and, and he was actually just not too far from that mobile home, building us a a house with his own hands uh, for us to live in. So I grew up in a place where you're not valued for your creative passions or or your bookish nature, but rather for your physical labor. And it was quite a feral childhood, actually. There was no money or geographic proximity to a uh, babysitter, so I was often left to fend for myself. Uh, But that was okay, and and often quite beautiful, actually, because I had Mother Earth and her animals to keep me company. Oh, there's a a tractor, I think that's at a nearby state fair, Um, but those were also parked at the shed right on our farm, so the state fair wasn't so impressive to me, I guess, when they tried out the agricultural bits, that was our daily work. There's that Mother Nature, uh, Mother Earth I was talking about and, and the animals I was surrounded by. While there was uh, quite a bit of solitude and silence about that space, if, if you're looking around, you're never quite alone. Oh, I should tell you, that's, that's our work shed in the background where we kept our own tractors and combines. And, and to the left there in the background is that little uh, metal shelter that was on wheels that uh, would have blown away had a tornado uh, happened by and uh, my dad was building our house at that time. There's Nick, my dad cleaning a pheasant which is a commonly uh, hunted bird in our area and uh, we didn't hunt things for sport we we hunted them to eat them and that's my little brother in the foreground learning this new task of cleaning an animal. That's me fleeing the resident goat brownie. You'll note that um, the response to this situation was not, oh dear, save little Sarah, it was grab a camera. (laughs) And uh, believe it or not, that's the same goat brownie after having eaten half of my dad's paycheck, just like something out of a country country western song. My dad's work pickup, he had left the window unrolled with his hard-earned paycheck on the dashboard and the goat thought it might make an excellent afternoon snack. My favorite kind of critter, the farm cat. So what did it mean to be a little girl in such a place and class where daily reality is a tactile, physical sort of survival? Well, it meant for one thing that there's no concept of a lady. And that suited me just fine, because I liked going along to slop the hogs, feed the cattle, check the wheat fields. That's what I'm up to with my grandpa Arnie right there. So let's talk about women and work. In the mid-1980s, my mother, having born two children out on that prairie and having little professional opportunity without a university degree, put her creativity to work and hatched a scheme to sell fireworks from the edge of one of our fields to passers-by around the time of Independence Day, which in the States is celebrated with all manner of dazzling explosives. And here's our little firecracker stand, which was hammered together by my dad, but where my mother was undeniably the boss. And there she is, that's Jeannie um, adding up the sales while my dad was probably working in a field or on some construction site. I learned their work ethic early. And that's me helping with cleanup around some construction site of my dad's or my grandfather's. But there was one person among us, actually, who was by then getting paid for her work in an office this was quite a rare thing, um, to, to the left of center there with the sort of bob, bobbed blonde hair, that's Grandma Betty. In the 1970s, the United States passed a federal law called Title IX that assured for the first time, at least on paper and in legal terms, that women could not be discriminated against for their sex in professional spaces. And that legislation came with grant monies for women to receive training for jobs they'd been kept out of. So with that financial help, my grandma Betty attended a business school where she learned to type and do general clerical work like write business memos and file documents. And she got a job as a secretary for a judge at the courthouse in downtown Wichita. And that was about 30 miles from the farm I've been showing you. So our, our version of rural uh, was certainly um, remote in terms of there's no uh, cops or uh, there's no uh, police force in terms of safety. No one's clearing your road for you. But we were close enough to that city of Wichita where she had grown up that she could make a, a long commute to, to take such a job. And it was the first time she'd been employed for something other than grueling labor. She told me it was the easiest job she'd ever had and yet the best compensated, which as a writer on class, I find to be a common irony. So when a man vacated a position as a subpoena officer there at that courthouse, and that's someone who delivers court orders to people's doors, which can be quite dangerous work, uh, Betty saw that that job had come open and she thought being a secretary was kind of boring, and she said to the judge she was working for at the time that she wanted that better paying and more exciting gig. And he said, that's no job for a woman. She replied, your honor, you better check the law on that. <laughs> she got the job, and she worked her way up the ladder in the court system for almost 20 years. And I'd tag along when school was out of session. So as a country kid, I was amazed by this clean, air-conditioned space with, marble, with a marble lobby and people wearing suits, which was so unlike the world where I lived To be clear, we still didn't have much money, but thanks to the grit among men and women of my family and federal policy that finally gave women a chance at upward mobility independent of fathers and husbands, we had enough that we didn't feel poor. That shift was just two short generations. There's Betty and my young mother, Jeannie, in the 1970s on the left and on the right. That's Grandma Betty and me in the early 1990s. But still, an immense pay gap persists, and still, women in poverty are disadvantaged twice over for their class and their gender, and for some women, too, their race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation. So for me to realize my purpose on Earth as that bookish kid you saw on the trailer steps, say, to be the first woman from my family to not have a baby as a teenager, to finish high school, to be the first from my family to attend university. I had to work in such a way that I saw through the fallacy of the American dream. It is not a true meritocracy, but a plutocracy, where your ability to lay claim on the idea of getting what you work for, giving your children a better life than yours, upward mobility, all that correlates not to how hard you work, but to what privileges you were born to. For me, I was born to economic and gender disadvantage and racial advantage. My working myself out of poverty makes me the fortunate exception, not the rule. I still live 30 miles from that farm, and every day I'm surrounded by the same people I've introduced you to. They worked just as hard as I did, but without the success story you might see in my life, as is the case for the 40 million Americans of all races and backgrounds living in poverty today. Powerful supposed democracies like the United States peddle a lot of dangerous and convenient myths, it turns out. The poor whites that you've been told elected Donald Trump. What if I told you that white Americans at every income level voted for Trump at roughly the same rate? And the exit polls indicated college-educated whites voted for him by a small majority, majority, too. My family wasn't among them, as it happens. So America's rural, poor, and working classes are not politically, racially, or culturally homogenous. No one loathes Trump more than my working white working-class family, actually. Uh, and, and a much greater problem than any right-wing shift where they live is that poor Americans often lack the agency to vote at all in a country where voting day happens on a Tuesday while people like my family must be at work. Only 58% of eligible, eligible American voters cast a ballot in 2016. There's no compulsory voting in the United States, but yet a classist political narrative about my place and class persists. Now some good news. As someone who has been writing and talking about class for almost 20 years, I am heartened that since the 2016 election, the United States and countries around the world are finally, it seems to me, after centuries of denial about their class structures, beginning to talk honestly about economic injustice and its myriad intersections with gender, race, place, and so on. I knew at a young age that I wanted to tell the story of my family, and most of my book, Heartland, was actually finished over a decade ago. Literary agents and editors would say to me, well, you're good with a turn of phrase, but we're not sure why this matters. My country and places like it around the world weren't ready to talk about class then, but the fact that I'm on this stage, carrying along with me the spirit of that little girl on the wind-beaten trailer steps, being heard as a woman who has experienced working poverty firsthand tells me that something is shifting. We are beginning to articulate a centuries old problem. One I've learned during my visit to Australia unites a great many people in your country with that vast, ill understood swath of prairie that I still call home in the middle of the United States. Thank you.
0: Well, those publishers were right about one thing. You do have a very good turn of phrase, sir. <laughs> Sarah. uh, Sarah's book is is very poetic. You might think, uh, being about some, uh, so much political content, that it, it may be a a little bit dry but in fact it's full of this love of people and character and and the land and the wind and the the harvest moon and and many of these beautiful moments that you bring to us. The book's also uh, written to a child. Uh, You address the book to a child that you uh, didn't have and you've already pointed out to us that your mother had you when she was 17, her mother had her when she was 16. You address it to the child that you didn't have when you were a teenager. Tell us a bit about that. That's right. So, uh,
1: at, as I hinted at at the end of my my talk, I, I'm actually, best I can conclude from my research, I'm the first woman in my direct maternal line to not have a, a, a baby as a teenager, um, like as far back to, like as when women were wearing corsets, as far back as records were kept. And um, and that generational legacy is something that I just kind of felt in my marrow somehow. I, I could sense, you know, while my mother had a profound love for me, it was clear to me as a kind of empathic child that my having come into existence sort of derailed what Uh, might've been some of her other plans with her, uh, youth. And, um, and so, so I understood just kind of on a cellular level, I couldn't have articulated it as a kid, of course, but that somehow for women, there was this intertwining of one's, you know, potential as, um, a child bearer and, and one's economic outcomes. And so the way I would put it now in the most simple terms is, um, Motherhood makes poverty harder and poverty makes motherhood mm-hmm. harder and that sort of cycle is a is a trap that can ensnare uh, people like my mother and, and millions of others this isn't to say that they um, uh, weren't, weren't pleased you know to, to have children or, or didn't love them but but, but knowing that I had goals for myself that were quite ambitious in economic terms and creative terms, uh, I understood that if I was going to, quote, unquote, you know, break the cycle, that my first job would be to make sure that, that, that I didn't um, repeat that pattern in my family. So when I was writing this book, and I'm kind of intertwining very public ideas, I talk about policy, and I'm also kind of bearing witness to the most private and intimate iterations of a class experience, uh, it it occurred to me, if I let the reader in on this sort of dialogue, that internal dialogue deep in my psyche that I had with this would-be child that I knew I was not going to create, you know, I used to talk to her, and I even gave her a name, August, and I thought, you know, while it feels very uncomfortable, if I let people in on that therein you know that truth kind of unlocks the way in which public forces shape our most intimate experiences because what mm. what could be more private than one's own womb
0: yes and and the conversation that, that you have with august is somehow also a, a conversation with your higher self yeah. Uh, yeah some other version of yourself perhaps because you do uh, reveal so many intimate details about your family. You, you have you've had to ask them for permission to do that, and and they they gave you their blessing for a couple of reasons. One because they wanted a bit of the record to be to be created of of their family's life, but also to extend a hand to others mm. in the in a gesture that it may well help others by yes. by hearing this story. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that um, one of the great fortunes that that I was born into, while we talk a lot about my family and in terms of economic poverty, um, that the generosity of my family and their willingness to, and their blessing to share their story
0: um, was quite humbling to mm. me. Yeah, a real act of generosity. Because the details that we hear are, you know, they're hard, some of them. Uh, Uh, As I mentioned earlier, you you went back to try and piece together what was on the record about your family because uh, unlike aristocratic families, there aren't libraries (laughs) sitting around full of this stuff. No. uh, Letters that have been kept for generations. Although you uh, you do give us one or two insights into a time in in Betty's life and a letter uh, where she's... Oh, I just hoped so much for her. She actually almost broke out of of this cycle before she met Arnie, who was fantastic. She uh, left the town and she went to start this new life. Uh, and she took her baby and she set up a, a little home in a flat and she got a job and there were neighbours. And she was doing OK. Yeah. Until Ray... Yeah. ..turned up. Right. And. Uh, she writes this letter back to the family, and as you point out, almost every sentence is about a worry—a worry about money, a worry about how how they're going to manage to do things. Tell us a bit about Betty's life at that time and, and Ray. Sure.
1: So as a teenage mother,
0: um,
1: and sh- she did, you know, properly marry as as was. Um, Almost roundly, you know, suggested in in that time. This is the 1960s. She she did marry the baby's father, but I wouldn't say out of love. Uh, it was just the socially proper thing to do since she um, was pregnant. And uh, unfortunately for her and for my mother, he was a, a viciously uh, violent man. And she uh, caught on pretty quick that uh, for her own survival, safety, dignity, and that of her daughter too that um, she needed to break away from this guy she asked her family and others for, for the money that it would cost to file for a divorce in the court system, and, and she didn't have any luck um, with getting help in that way. She was working as a waitress at the time, I think, and she put together enough money to at least fill this old jalopy of a car uh, up with some, some gas to get her. She wasn't sure where she'd go. She pointed the car north in our great expansive Midwest where we're from and, and uh, had her baby, a basket full of clothes. Hit the road, and she landed in Chicago, which is quite a long drive, actually. Uh, the states being a, a vast place, um, and, and yeah, as you say, she she found an apartment that that was super cheap at at that time. A, you know, a, a job was easier to come by. She took a job in a factory as well as a deli. Um, she the um, Puerto Rican landlord of the her apartment babysat my then infant mother but then that 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 abuser shows up he followed her to chicago and and the reason that suddenly then the letters turn to worry is he was he was quite a dead weight both as kind of a you know um emotionally abusive presence and physically, but also as a guy who was out shooting pool and drinking too much during the day. So suddenly she's carrying a burden, not just for her and her own child, but in some ways, while society never would have given her credit, she was the breadwinner and certainly the more responsible of the two. Um, and, and so then uh, she, she fled again uh, and she did ultimately break away from him. Unfortunately, he wasn't the last to give her a beating at home, but um, she
0: was on her way. Mm-hmm. And and you mentioned the eight marriages that she had. Now, there was a, a very specific reason for that, in fact. It, it was about the agency that she could get through being a married woman. Yes. And, you know, I guess maybe I'm not sure how much you want to reveal about mm. that, but yeah. she, there was something that she was trying to regain.
1: Right. Yeah, so she was at, this, um, at a moment when she was... Um Needed favor in the in the in the court system in the states it ha- had to do with her her second child, and uh, she was re- um, shamed by the legal system repeatedly for being by that time a, a twice divorced woman. I should add, by the way, that she was um, uh, while poor, she took great. P- pride in her appearance. And at the time, you know, she had the fashionable big blonde bouffant and, and also quite scandalously, mini skirts, go-go boots. <laughs> so, um, you know, she she wasn't um, trying to appear prim and proper, and that certainly wasn't her character. She was living in the context of a culture that would that would shame her for that um, sort of brazen um, display of herself. and 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 so... That combined with her being a twice-divorced woman, um, essentially she, she 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 was advised, she was told, you need to show that you have a stable household. You need to show that you have a provider, as though she hasn't always provided for herself. Um, And so she very earnestly took that advice and, um, you know, at at many junctures, married out of seeming convenience just so that it would appear on paper that she was part of a, a marital unit. Uh, and, and so as I write in the book though, she, she could be talked into marrying for the wrong reasons. Not that she had much of a choice in that context, um, but she could never be convinced to stay. So she would divorce soon thereafter and then that cycle would repeat. And, uh, and so by the time she's in her mid thirties and meets Arnie, she's already been married seven times. Mm.
0: Yeah. And, and lost custody of of her son. Yes. So uh, it's just an extraordinary breadth of of family history that you you give us. Tell us a bit about uh, the way that you uh, experience the, the, the system that does want better for people, because throughout... Uh, your life, you actually benefited from these systems that were put in place that you sort of think, oh, would that ever really work? Well, they do work. Yeah. They do. You you, you know, got free lunches yes. at school and, and educational opportunities.
1: Yeah, f- certainly. So, um, you know, as far as the government's presence in my life, I... Uh, uh, because of our income level, I qualified for, as you say, for a free lunch. And, and, uh, you know, there was, there was usually a hot dinner at home, but breakfast was usually quite spotty and my mother would already be at work. I was a quite small child getting my little brother ready for school on my own and we'd go off with empty bellies. And so, uh, the hot school lunch that was free and provided by the state was our first square meal. um, and uh, and and also that of course I attended public schools so so uh, my my book learning as my family would call it um, came by way of taxpayer dollars, and I went on to a state university and, in part uh, with the help of scholarships that that I I worked hard to earn based on my grades but you know that came from generosity of in some cases um, state funded systems in other cases private sources, and uh, but but crucially and this is I, I think the most important one to note. When I was uh, in my last year at university, my my fourth year as an undergraduate, I... um that there was a, a federally funded program on campus that was all over the the United States that was um, its mission statement was to encourage first generation low income and minority college students toward graduate school and the academy and so by then i 'm a senior in college i 'm getting ready to graduate, and I was th- they're saying talking to me about graduate school and and i d- I literally didn 't know what that meant. I thought. I thought I done went to college, you know what I mean? <laughs> and and um it turns out that I just I didn't even have the language or understanding to uh, to aspire to that next post which which had everything to do probably with the trajectory of my life. I did end up and then I ended up with their support. They paid for my application fees. I could go in their office and use their computer. It was in the early days of the internet. I didn't have my own computer. And so without their intervention I never would have applied. I got accepted to an Ivy League university, Columbia University in New York City, and off I went. Uh, and that, no doubt, changed the trajectory of my life. And and there, there but for the grace of the taxpayers' dollar.
0: <laughs> yeah, and uh, there's a beautiful list of all the teachers that you thank at the end of this book who have been very much part of that. And that's you know, I'm sure there's teachers here who, who will, uh, you know <laughs> may be quite misty-eyed actually reading that mm-hmm. because I know that those people can just change your life completely. Oh, yes. So uh, you've chosen to live in Kansas, though. You 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 went to New York, you did this, and, and you've, you've chosen to live there. Is that a political move that you've made, or is mm. it because it's home, or why?
1: I think it's all of the above. And I must say that when I, when I left New York in my mid-20s, um, it was, I would say, the most controversial decision I've ever left uh, made in my life the my friends I had made there were thinking like well we thought you got out which is a f- you know a common phrase about how did you get out oh she got out how is he going to get out this framework suggests that one place is superior to another when in fact for my sensibilities I told you about how I loved that farm I grew up on it's more the the um economic forces at work that, that require one to, to leave home um, in so many ways, whether it's rural, urban, whether it has to do with class, even within an urban context, there we fancy ourselves kind of a post-place society I think sometimes in this 21st century hyper-digital moment mm-hmm. but but ultimately we're still a, a rock in outer space that we're, that's covered with human beings some of whom some of whom just just love the the earth and the land where they <laughs> grew up and um and and so I I needed to go to New York to take care of business but as soon as I thought maybe I've um you know put put dug my claws into that aspirational trajectory enough i can i can sort of i can go home and still make good on it and um and also i should note that because of my particular trade as a journalist and as a writer you know there there are some writers in the united states who um you know, when 20 years ago, they they left Ohio or wherever, and now from San Francisco or New York City, they're wagging their finger at people where I'm from and writing about it as though they're the experts. And I do feel that there is some, um, that there's something important about keeping myself planted and grounded in that place so that I'm not writing about it in the rearview mirror. Mm. Uh, And I also love it. It's my Mm. home.
0: Yeah, yeah. there's a moral obligation in a way to tell the the truth of the place. So, to the politics of what you've written, uh, you say 1980, your birth year, was a particular turning point for the worse for uh, people in your situation. Why? What happened? So that year was was
1: quite a pivotal presidential election in the States between an incumbent uh, Democratic, Jimmy Carter, He was a kind of of uh, salt-of-the-earth peanut-farmer-turned-politician. And uh, my mother, in 1980, when he was up for re-election, being challenged by a Republican you might have heard of, Ronald Reagan, My mother, who was at the time I was an infant, she was had recently come of voting age. She was 18, and it was her first presidential election. She voted for Jimmy Carter. He would he lost that election, of course, and and thus began what we call the Reagan era, which was essentially maps against my 1980s childhood. He was our president for the better um, uh, part of that decade, and essentially that was, you know. My book, I don't think, is an overtly political one, but I do state the facts as I see them, which is policies at that moment came down that became, um, well, most crucial rewriting of our tax law, uh, such that we came, we bought into this idea of trickle down economics, i.e., I. you 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 cut taxes at the top, and 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 the spending and the the affluence at the top trickles down through wages or charitable giving or whatever to the people at the bottom. I say in my book as though we're all standing outside with our (laughs) mouths open waiting for it to rain, you know? Um, And and it turns out that that money uh, by my estimation and many um, bipartisan economists does not in fact trickle down. It stays right there at the top where it's um, heavily guarded. Um, and cleverly guarded, so uh, the the gap between the haves and the have-nots dramatically widened during my childhood.
0: In that, at that was the beginning. That point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in a moment, I'll I'll ask uh, to open the the conversation to you. So if you do have a question or you'd like to to make a comment, then uh, you know there's two microphones on either side here, and people ready to to help you. So if you you'd like to do that, then uh, yeah. So how's your book been received? What what are the kind of comments that people have mm. made? What are the ones that get under your skin a bit?
1: Oh, the ones that get under my skin. You know, I have to say. <laughs> There's so few of those, and the, the response has in general been so heartening and lovely. Um, I suppose once in a while, now I, I will say this comes more often from someone who hasn't read my book, <laughs> but they will nonetheless um, dare to ask. Well, if you've written, documented economic strife, then why do they all vote for the party that would harm, that would harm their economic, their own economic um, uh, successes and and sustainability and um, and and in that question, I find a, a framework that I was sort of speaking against in my talk, which is perceiving a giant swath of people as as a monolith is quite dangerous and it's actually dehumanizing. It's the reason that I set out to write about the things that I do because, you know. Um, uh, just as along gender lines and race lines, we should not make assumptions about people. So two, we should not uh, make assumptions based on class and place. I find that that's a, a, um, a less well understood aspect of um, you know, good liberalism and progressive thought.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm thinking of Hillary Clinton's deplorables at the moment, yeah. which is, right. yeah. Well, who, who would like to ask a question? I've I've left my glasses behind and it's very bright up here. So, <laughs> <laughs> over here, over here. Hi. Um, thank you very
2: much. Is, is it on? Yep, OK. Hi. Thank you very much for um, sharing the story of your, your family and yours. I, I think that it's lovely to be so generous to share your story. Thank you. Um, I'm really interested in, you know, how you speak about the 1980s and how there's a real shift in... Um, suddenly the, between the haves and the have-nots. And I can't help but feel that mm. quite often now we feel very powerless about it. We look mm. at the political parties, we feel that they're so aligned that we don't see really any shift whoever we vote for. And I'm just wondering, you know, well, what can we actually do to sort of bring mm. that closer back so there's the class, um, there's not as much difference between the class.
1: Mm. And, and you're asking specifically in terms of wealth as opposed to culture, or...?
2: Um, I suppose I'm just sort of thinking that, you know, the politicians are the ones that sometimes set the legislation that impacts upon our culture, and, right. and I just sort of think, well, you know, are they the leaders, and is is there any way that we can influence it? Right, yeah.
1: Mm. Well, I think that's a great question, thank you. Um, I, th- I believe that our best hope is to seize any agency that we have as, as um, humble individuals, citizens, uh, day-to-day workers, to organize and champion causes on our own accord, not leave the um, charge of progress to our elected officials. Certainly, we hope that we have the option uh, to, to, to cast a ballot for uh, someone who will end up holding office and do right by um, the issues that are dear to us, but ultimately the the only uh, true shifts in society, uh, economy, culture, what we might call a revolution, if you think that such a thing is in order today, globally or in any given country, th- those only those only happen at the ground level, and they they are led by people um, not not from the heights of power, or in in my country, who are you know buddy buddy with Wall Street, but rather. People like um, more like my family. the The challenge of that is that, uh, you know, I was talking about how there's a, a real issue with non-voting in the states. Uh, and I'm sure that there are, you know, parallels just in terms of civic participation of different sorts around the globe. Um, the, the poorer you are and the harder you have to work, the less time and energy and information you have to do all that stuff. Uh, and we see that in a class divide in the women's movement and all sorts of um, political discussions. And and so I'm no expert on organizing. And, in fact, I, I come from a family where I live in a state right now that uh, the state of Kansas, like many in the United States, is um, has has laws that basic, basically restrict the rights of unions and the ability of workers to organize or or even get on the same page about
0: anything. So it's it's quite a hard road mm. to hoe. But you write quite movingly about the very organic grassroots way that this is done, not a, not in an organized or a charitable uh, way with vehicles and institutions, but uh, for example, when your grandfather Arnie died, mm. eventually the farm was sold along with all the equipment. And the auctioneer got up there and said, OK, well, this, you know, Arnie was a great guy. Let's let's make this a great auction. And everyone who turned up paid top price because in some way they had benefited from him... Yes. ...being part of their life. And this was their way of paying back and making sure that the tools that he'd used as a worker, as a provider, were showing the, the value that they really had for him and for the family that they they had uh, benefited. And yeah. that's that kind of very organic, ground-level way of yes. of making this kind of action, I suppose, maybe in answer to your question mm. too, that uh, being an example of it. Yeah, well said. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we've got a great question up here. We've got a... I think, yeah. Uh,
3: Hi. Hello, Sarah. Hi. Hi. Uh, thanks for your talk and um, thank you for your story. Um, that was definitely relevant to me personally, hearing that. So there was a lot that um, that I could feel. So thank you. Um, what I would like to ask is um, your. Or I'd like to get more of a sense of your experience coming back home. Um, I'd just like to know if there was if you felt a sense of change or things remain the same, particularly with the idea that um, you were able to access mobility. Um, so I'd just like to know. Uh, what uh, what your experiences were returning. Mm-hmm. Fantastic question. Great yeah,
1: one. yeah. You know, I unfortunately, um, the best I can surmise is that uh, my, uh, the sort of counterpart to, to me in the 1980s, who is a, a child now on that same prairie, probably has less of a chance than I did um, in economic terms in that... Uh, well the the wealth that I that I talked about the wealth gap that I discussed widening during my childhood it certainly didn't stop when the 1980s ended uh, it just happens to be that I I was a child in the in at, on a farm at a moment that we call the farm crisis really came to a head family farms all around us were um, were going under and uh, Small town main streets were beginning to board up and look a bit like ghost towns, and and so that was coming to a head in my childhood, and now it's it's um it's a severe crisis. It's it's not as though you just sort of look around and see signs of it. Some places have you know, I, I hate to use, say the word died because it's um it suggests that there's no human being living there and, and no possibility left, but uh, but I do fear that that we have shifted more now into um. What in my childhood could have been prevented, I guess is what I'm saying, um, it has now come to pass. And now rather than a, a, a mode of prevention in terms of policy, uh, it has to be a more re- reactionary sort of um, uh, crisis intervention.
0: You also write about the um, pain of separating. Once you realised that your destiny was different yeah. and that you weren't going to be living a life like your mother's or your grandmother's or you know, the, the great community around you, that that was a sense of loss.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um the uh, African-American writer W.E.B. Du Bois had this term for his experience as a as a, as a black man highly educated in the 19th century, which made him quite auspicious in social terms. He had this term dual consciousness that sort of represented this bifurcated sense of self that resulted from one being a sort of bridge person, I suppose, between two different worlds. And, and in class terms, and in my humble way, I guess I've... I feel a sort of parallel with that. And and that can be quite challenging and it can be even lonely at times to feel yes. that you never completely belong on either side.
0: Yes, yeah, I, I'm sure there are people here who uh, experience that. In fact, my own mother is here and I think she would probably say that she experienced that too, coming from a very poor uh, family, uh, a widow, widowed mother, two other siblings, living hand-to-mouth and uh, eventually winning a university scholarship and and being able to leave the small town of Armidale and come to Sydney and, and find a destiny there. I think there's always two selves that you, you end up having, you know. Am I right, Mum? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Hi, Mum.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you you leave one behind and you make another, but they're always... They're both always living at the same time. Feel free to ask a question. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if uh, people are sort of ready to take up the opportunity. I wonder if there is something around a comparison with Australia in this story, those cycles of, of uh, being trapped in, in, a, in a poverty that is grinding down. Uh, do you think that this is an experience that's really universal?
1: I have found it to be, you know... Um I wasn't sure, but when I set out on my book tour last September, and this has now included, uh, you know, cities, rural areas, small towns, every region of the United States, and now a whole other country of Australia, um, people come up to me and say, you, you have somehow written my story. The specifics are different, but the tale is the same, of working very hard, being surrounded by a, a greater wealth than I could access, being underpaid, and, and sensing a, a sort of... Um, uh, being at, at, at the losing end of a class continuum. Yeah,
0: mm. yeah it, 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 I think that in Australia right now we are... Well, it has been happening for some time. We are seeing that the advantages offered to people who are trying to step out of, of, a, of a cycle are getting tougher and tougher. And yeah. I know that, you know, the um, Centrelink changes to the way you have to, you know, apply for things has just gotten tougher and tougher. Right. And I've, I've heard it argued that uh, the old idea of... Uh, Robin Hood, mm. um, robbing from the rich to to feed the poor, to give to the poor, yeah. is a narrative that now is completely the other way around. And mm. we see the poor mm-hmm. as somehow robbing the rich, you know. <laughs> right. Kind of stealing this money from from our collective coffers when they yeah. don't really have any entitlement to it. There's, right. a, there's a narrative that seems to have done a complete 180.
1: Yeah, I think that sounds right. I think there's a woman there so it's
0: Oh, hi. Hi. I I just... um, Thank you very much for your talk. It's just been amazing. Um, I've loved your story. Thank you. But I I just wanted to know, what do you think... Why do you think, um, in America, they have elections on a Tuesday? Is Mm. that deliberately designed? Well, it ain't by accident. Because, I mean, I know we're not much better here. We have elections on the weekend, and often people are not voting in their own self-interest, in my opinion... But uh, yes, can that be changed? That voting on a Tuesday?
1: Well, I would think it surely could be, and it would seem to me that since it hasn't been, someone benefits from this uh, very difficult voting system that we have, and it ain't my people who are who benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so actually, that has been in in the last couple of years since the 2016 election, the, the most mobile, most important mobilizing and organizing that I have seen in the states has been around. Um, uh, voters' rights. And uh, even at the state level, there have been a number of um, policies passed that just make it harder to vote. So they will, you know, they can preserve one's right to vote and you have it on paper, but then can you access your right to vote is another question. And there are very clever ways to make sure that poor folks and people of color cannot. One is to... um, closed down polling sites so now the closest place to cast a ballot is 40 miles away if you have to take off work that's an extra hour and a half out of your day you've got to ask off from the boss and you've got to uh, put extra gas in your car to boot um these uh i don't think it's any accident
0: Mm. I'm not sure if there's somebody up there, maybe. I but, don't
1: think so now. We're blinded. This, <laughs> they're bright lights.
0: <laughs> um, I don't see anyone now. One of the things that you touched on, and I, and I think you just almost touched on it there, is like the criminalisation of being poor. How yeah. how it's easy to become part of the criminal class if you don't have yes. the access yes. to the kind of... Being jailed for a parking ticket, for example. and yes. Then then that automatically locks you out of the electoral process as well.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I, there's a great book called Nickel and Dimed uh, by Barbara Ehrenreich that came out about a decade ago where she documents just um, how costly it is to be poor. So, you know, if you've got a busted taillight uh, on your car and you get pulled over, they issue a citation, you can't afford the citation, maybe you bought, you get a payday loan that has 20% interest on it. it just It's a hole that digs deeper and deeper.
0: Mm, and, and, yeah. Yeah, child care as well, is it? Oh, yeah. Right?
3: Yeah. Oh, hi. Um, <laughs> my s- story is very similar to Sarah's. I was on a farm, um, first in the family to graduate high school, first to go to university. Uh, my farm lo- family lost their farm during the 90s drought, and hey. we are seeing very much now with the drought that's occurring in Australia, um, similar mm. situations where family farms are going under, Um, Farms that have been in generation, you know, generational farms that didn't owe any money when they were inherited, now surely do. Um, And and I've obviously gotten out, in inverted commas. Um, How and what responsibility do those living in metro areas Mm. have to farming communities and families to help um, reduce that gap? Mm. Uh, You know, we don't have subsidies in Australia for farmers. Um, there's drought funds, which are a very new thing, but the subsidisation that occurs in other areas of the world is not something that exists here. Mm. So I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I love that question, and congrats on your life story, and thanks for sharing that. Um, well, what uh, first, this isn't pre- exactly what you asked, but when, but when people say to me, um you know sh- sh- w- should we as as people in an urban center care about rural america or why should we yeah, i my first answer is do you do you eat much you- <laughs> fancy food um because uh you know i having been part of the agricultural system as you were uh, it sounds like it's um, it's it 's uh, shocking to me the extent to which the the average urban dweller can feel um or be Absolutely detached from mm-hmm. uh, the the source of those systems, Oblivious. which uh, often is um, a human worker and and um, in global terms often uh, someone who is um, at a racial and ethnic disadvantage too so um, you know I think that what urban folks can do is to to, to try to close that gap in their own individual sentiments and lives. And whether that means educating themselves about rural life in America or the farming system, um, I would say also um, extending the same humility to those spaces and the wisdom that they uh, contain as um, as one, you know, for me, a farm kid, I, um, a couple years off the farm, I had my first internship in New York City at the, New York affiliate of NBC and 30 Rockefeller Plaza, and it was quite humbling to me. You know, I thought this is a whole this is a whole world that I don't know, and and yet I found that when I was in that world, those folks dared to have a lot of wisdom and ideas about where I was from. But if they had went out to slop the hogs or tend the cattle or or plant wheat, they wouldn't have known what to you know. So I think there's some there's some class condescension too often baked into that so-called rural-urban divide that that gets us nowhere, and in fact. uh, prevents progress. So um, this is one, I think, that the qu- you, the heart of your question is really in people's um, individual ability to, to humble themselves and then all of these things like subsidies and policy follow.
0: Mm.
4: Well, we'll take our last question up here, I think, yeah. Oh, hi, I got an opportunity, I hope, to crystallise my question, but uh, <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask what your thoughts were about I guess, the the party system, both in the US, and it's something that, you know, I think we've mm. seen here, and how um, for a long time, I think perhaps over the last 20 or 30 years, there's been this sense in electorates that there, that there hasn't been a big distinction between the major parties, right. whether it be the Republicans and the Democrats in America or even here between our major parties. And the rise of sort of, um, I guess, more... Uh, Fringe elements on both sides. I, I don't know that they're fringe necessarily, but where you're seeing the rise of I don't know the Bernie Sanders of the world in the US, and and now you're hearing about millennial socialists like uh, you know uh, what's what's that lovely lady's name Alexandria uh, Ocasio Cortez, uh-huh. for example. Um, do you think that candidates like that, or that, or do you think that you'll see a shift in um, mm. in 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 the focus of parties yeah. um, in response. To, um, do you think we've gone as far as? We, do you think that there's a turning point? I guess is my question. Where this divide has become so big now, that there has to that that we're starting to see the rise of candidates like this or representatives um, who do have a better understanding of what it's like to be at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum or, you know, or who do understand what the struggle is of being a waitress who can't make ends meet. Yeah. And, uh, and whether you... Th- and and in, in Australia, we're starting to see independents uh, who are appearing entirely outside the party system... Yeah. I think some of them are appearing here later today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do, do you think they'll make a difference? And mm-hmm. uh, do you have hope that they will?
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think that we we have turned that corner already. And um, for, for several years, actually, I've been documenting as a journalist um, what I would call a progressive populism, which is um, you, you don't hear it in the national news so much about the United States, but you see it on the ground, even in places like Kansas that are referred to as quote-unquote Trump country. Uh, my white work working class father identifies now as a democratic socialist just in the last couple of years uh once he learned that term found out what it meant is quite a taboo idea in our country for most of his life he thought well that certainly sounds better than what what i've had going in my life so far sign me up um and so uh yeah i think that um when when a when a party system is entrenched and and power begins to coalesce and the differentiation becomes less and less, as you say, um, the the only um, uh, proper or possible corrective is that uh, folks like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who has a firsthand experience of being a working class woman of color, uh, it fights their way through the ranks. It it's, does say something about progress, I think, that she had the. Um, uh, that she was able to be elected, uh, and, and now she holds office, and she's, um, she's uh, forcing a conversation in ways that are quite awkward, even for supposedly liberal Democrats who have been part of what some people might call the establishment. Um, so uh, I, I think it's a, it's a good thing. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, I do agree with you. I feel like there is some kind of wind of change beginning to blow. Um, thank you so much for talking with us, and thank you for your book. Let's let's thank Sarah. Thank for that. you. Yeah.
2: Thanks.